Dear friends, do any of you have superstitions? Any superstitions among us? Um, maybe you'd never admit it, but you avoid walking under ladders. Just in case. Or, or maybe some of you have a lucky t-shirt that you wear whenever you're watching your favorite team. Depending on who your favorite team is, it may or may not be working. The truth is, is that there are superstitions in all different areas of life. But if you are to think about it, it would seem as if there's probably more than any other area of life that weddings seem to have lots of superstitions. I mean, you've heard of some of these, haven't you? Of how a bride is supposed to wear what? Something old, something new, something, something blue, right? Or how, um, and maybe some of you stuck to this, how a, a, a bride and groom, um, for luck purposes, aren't supposed to see each other on their wedding day until the wedding service starts. Or maybe it's that superstition that it's actually a good thing, a lucky thing, if it rains on your wedding day. Now, what I've always thought about that is that someone invented that because they knew a bride and groom and they wanted to make them feel better because it rained on their wedding day. You know, that's probably where that came from. But those are some you know. There are other superstitions about weddings tell you how superstitious this world is. In uh, English culture, or English superstition, is that it's a good luck for a marriage if when a, wedding, a bride puts on her wedding dress, she finds a spider in it. Or in uh, Greek culture, a bride is supposed to put a sugar cube in her wedding glove if she wears them because it's supposed to sweeten their marriage. Um, in a culture, I don't know which culture this comes from, but I read it in multiple places, that in some cultures it's good luck to, for a wedding or a marriage to have a cat eat out of your left shoe one week before the wedding. That's just, you know, weird. You know, carrying the bride over the threshold, it's not because she chose, like all brides do, high heels that were uncomfortable, and so now the groom has to carry her. It actually comes from roots which are, are spiritual. In the Roman culture, it's, it was supposed to help keep the evil spirits away. In English culture, it's good luck if on your way to the, your wedding, you see a toad, a lamb, or of all things, a chimney sweep. You see Dick Van Dyke, you know, it's a good thing. While it's bad luck if on your way to their wedding service you would see a nun or a monk. We, we keep nuns and monks away from here when we have weddings at, uh, at Bethlehem. Now, it's amazing the things you learn at church. Uh, I could go on, but I won't. So why did I bring these things up? It's not so that, you know, aspiring bride and groom are taking notes on how to have a blessed marriage. But instead, in fact, I don't say this often, but you can forget everything I just said. Because all of those superstitions are just that, and they're silly and they're nonsense, and they're not worth your brain energy. But why did I talk about superstitions? Because superstitions tell you something about culture. Superstitions tell you something about people. To have superstitions, to even think about them, to follow them especially, says that that person acknowledges that there is a world that they cannot see, that there is a spiritual realm out there. It might even be an acknowledgement that there is a God or there is a higher power. Because otherwise, why would you even think about these things? Now, for you and I, I mean, 
spiders and dresses and raining on wedding days. I mean, it's just silly nonsense. But for some people, when they created these things, it was an acknowledgement of a, of a higher being. Now, the truth is, and I know you found this in your own life, the truth is, is that most people do believe in the existence of a God or a higher power. Here's an interesting statistic from just three years ago. Even as our country is moving further and further away from God and the Bible, the surveys came back to say that only 2% of Americans would call themselves atheists. Now, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, this shouldn't surprise you at all. You know why? Our kids could tell us. Because God has given, the Bible says, signs in this world of how wonderfully he's created things, how unique and, and creative our bodies are, that they work. You see a beautiful sunrise and how huge the universe is. And the psalmist says, only the fool would say in their heart there is no God. But from there, that there is a God, people have gone off into all different directions to try to figure out who he is and what is right. And my question simply this, is Christianity just like all the others? And I think likely, because I know you, you'd say no. But if not, what makes Christianity different? What makes faith in Jesus more than just a religion. Well, that brings us to our lesson for today. Because a man you know, at least most of you do, named Paul, he needed to talk to a group of Greeks about that very thing. Because their culture was all messed up when it comes to spirituality. Lots of different religions. And so he needed to talk to them about the difference in Christianity. So we're going to turn to the book of Acts. And Acts, not only being a God-inspired book of the Bible, also happens to be its content, a history book. It's just a God-inspired history book of what happened to Christians after Jesus died and rose from the dead. And the specific context of our section is Paul being as a missionary in the city, a city you know, the city of Athens. Paul was sent from Jerusalem to go and, and share the message of the resurrection with people in Italy and Greece and Turkey. And this would have been a really hard job because these cultures knew nothing of Jesus. They were a whole hodgepodge of different types of spirituality. And so while he's in Athens, Paul takes some time to look around and he notices that there are all these different temples, all the different gods, all these different idols, all these different thoughts on religions. The, the Athenians were the type of people who would put uh, spiders in their dresses and uh, food, have cats eat out of shoes, just in case. <laughs> in fact, a, a building that you may recognize, the Parthenon, would have been something that Paul would have seen, because it was around 2,000 years ago. This isn't some governmental building. It kind of looks like the White House, maybe, or some sort of building you might see in D.C. This was built as a temple to the goddess Athena, the namesake of Athens. And so these false gods are everywhere. And Paul becomes very saddened by what he sees, and he begins to share a new message. Now, the interesting thing is, is he didn't get into philosophical debate. What do you think about God? Instead, his message was totally different. Verse 18 kind of summarizes it. 
He just talked about something that happened. Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And so Paul's new message um, was uh, caught the attention of the thinkers in Athens. It was a group of people called the Areopagus. These are the, uh, the greatest thinkers in Athens, and they invited him to come to a meeting. We want you, Paul, to tell us about this new teaching that you're sharing with us. And Paul takes him up on the offer, and that's where we are in Acts chapter 17. We'll begin with verse 22. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, that was true. Religious in quotes. I mean, they cared about the spiritual. There were temples and idols and statues everywhere. They were very religious in that sense. He goes on, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, this is very interesting. The historian around the time of Paul says that Athens likely had more gods than they had people. That's how confused they were. And just in case they missed something, they also had this altar to an unknown God. Now, to understand their spiritual situation, let me just tell you a quick story that will relate. Um, About a month ago or so, I got this really yucky cough and head cold and chest cold. Some of you know this. Some of you even had it. Not for me, I don't think, but uh, you, you know what I'm talking about. It was yucky, and, and it just wouldn't go away. And so, you know, when you're sick and it doesn't go away, people have all different types of ideas, like take lots of vitamin C. I think I heard, but don't take too much vitamin C. Um, you need to get on an antibiotic. I went to the Minute Clinic because I thought that was true, and they said, you don't need an antibiotic. And even my mom, all the way from Florida, caught wind that I wasn't feeling good, and she, she chimed in and on the phone. Now, you listen to your good old mom, and you know, I'm in my 30s, and she's still, you know, my mom, she still has advice for me. What you need to do is take Advil congestion. Not Advil, not Advil sinus and flu. She even told me, call me when you get to the store. It's Advil congestion. So there's all these options. And I kept the the door open to all of them. You know why? Well, if I knew what would have worked, I would have just done that. Because I didn't know what would work, I kept my options open. That's what was going on in Athens. Well, (laughs) Athena might be right, but I'm not quite sure. Let's keep our options open. They were the type of people who would put spiders in dresses and worry about seeing a monk on the way to their wedding service. Because who knows, God might work that way. And in fact, Paul notices they even had this altar to an unknown God. You know what this was? It was like the safety net. Just in case, amongst all the gods, we didn't get the right one, if he would ever come and talk to us, we could say, no, this is the one for you, the unknown God. (laughs) Just in case. Just in case. So here's the situation. They were very religious, but what weren't they? Very sure. They were very religious, but they weren't certain. It's not fun being religious and not being confident. So Paul uses this altar as like a children's message. 
You know how you have objects? And he bases his message, first of all, uses the altar as a transition. And now he starts to talk about the true God. Verse 23, now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to tell to you, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. You kind of have to read into this a little bit and understand the Athenians. They were so worried about the right temple and the right idol because this is how they felt God would work with them and speak to them. And so they put all of their focus on these things that they built. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything from you because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. You think God in some way is needy and needs you. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined, God did, the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. You have a big God. He's got everything figured out. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though, in truth, he's not far from each one of us. For in him... We live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets have said, we're his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. What, God is say, what Paul is saying here is, is basically pointing out a contradiction in their religious thought. They're supposed to be these really smart people, but he's pointing out, your God is way too small. I mean, even your own poets write about how he created things. You believe he created the world, and yet you're concerned about temples and idols and stones. I mean, guys, Areopagus, does this even make any sense? You do not have a small God. You've made him small. If he's the creator of the universe, God has to be much, much bigger than what you've made him. Now, before we throw too many stones at the Athenians, I think it's good for us to do some self-reflection and to think, you know, do we ever have the tendency or the temptation to make God small? We have a great God Do we ever have the temptation of trying to fit him in into our parameters to make him smaller than what he really is? To keep him boxed in by what we think? You know, we haven't seen God, at least for me, I don't know about you, he doesn't debrief me on the reasons why he does what he does all the time. And so sometimes, because we don't know it all and what he is thinking, we tend to put him in our little box and think, well, if he was smart, or if he really knew, or if things should be this way, or things should be that way, and what happens, what we're doing there, is we're making God, who knows all things, small. We have the temptation of fitting God into our thought processes. Or here's another way we can make God small. Do you ever do this? I think we all do. Getting the mistaken idea, in its perspective more than anything, getting the mistaken idea that God needs us. And what I mean by that is this, that somehow 
we're doing God a favor by being in church or by being nice to the new kid at school. That we're doing God a favor by behaving during homecoming or by forgiving um, that relative that hurt us. Or sometimes we get the idea that God needs us, that he needs our offerings, that he needs our service. And it's perspective, but it's important to understand. God does love those things, and he loves when we serve him, and he loves that we give him of our best. But that's a very different thing than him needing us. How many of you were there when God spoke and the Grand Canyon formed? How many of you saw Mount Everest be built up at God's words? And how many of you helped God with uh, making sure the Pacific Ocean goes over here and the Atlantic Ocean there and Africa right to our east? Any of you? I wasn't. He did all right without us, huh? He did all right without us in the past. He doesn't need us in the future. He loves us. But the almighty, great God has been made way too small if we think he ever needs us. Do you understand the difference there? And the Athenians and us sometimes have the danger of making God small. So Paul then goes on and he transitions in verse 30. It says, in the past times, God's overlooked that kind of ignorance, such ignorance. But now, transition, something new. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Saying, God's been patient with you guys. But now in our generation, just a few years ago, something new happened. Something new happened that changes everything. You see... Most religions teach that there are two types of people, good people and bad people. Now, Christianity teaches something else. It teaches there are people who repent and are forgiven and people who don't. That we all are sinful. That none of us are really good in our, and of ourselves. That we all need help from God. And so Paul's giving the Athenians a different perspective. Instead of trying to figure out all the answers of God, what I want you to do is, and what God is concerned about is your heart. Be more concerned with your heart and repentance and turning to him for forgiveness than all these great and illustrious questions that you'll probably never be able to answer anyway. All these philosophies. And then he tells them why and what's at stake. And this is good for us to remember too. This is the why. Verse 31. For God has set a day when he, God, quote unquote Jesus, will judge the world with justice by the man Jesus he's appointed. He has given proof of this to all men, to you Athenians, by raising Jesus from the dead. You're accountable, and there will be a day when Jesus returns to judge the world. Now, the good news is this, and this is what he had been teaching and preaching. 
that God in love has wiped away your sins, that Jesus came to this earth as your Savior, and he's paid for them, and you do not need to worry anymore about that. Get rid of your idols and your temples and focus on Jesus. And then did you catch that last sentence? He has given proof of this to all men by how? By raising him from the dead. Now you have to put yourself back 2,000 years. You're in the time where this actually happened. And Paul is kind of transitioning and he's saying, I'm not talking to you about theories. But what I'm telling you is something different. It's something that actually happened. It's a point in history. And, by the way, if you still don't believe me, Athenians, let's get in a boat, let's go across the Mediterranean, and I'll introduce you to some friends, John and James and Peter, and probably Thomas too, huh? And they'll tell you what they saw. They'll tell you what they experienced. Our faith is based on something awesome, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, something that happened, something that people validated. The Athenians didn't need a just-in-case God. Because God made his love and forgiveness clearly known through the person of Jesus. And so Christianity asks different questions than other religions. Most religions ask, who's right? Christianity asks, who's Jesus? Most religions asks, ask, what can I do for God? And Christianity asks the question, what has God done for you? Now, as far as I know, and I would know better than anyone, there is no altar to an unknown God anywhere in this building. So the question might arise, why does this matter? Why does everything that Paul is saying matter? We don't have an altar to an unknown God. It doesn't seem as if we're confused by what God is the right God and so forth. Why does this matter to us? Why do Paul's, how do Paul's words connect with us? Let me ask you this. Do you ever doubt? Do you ever have questions? Does the devil ever get you to not trust as much as you should? Paul's words are for you. What he's saying is instead of sitting and stewing and philosophizing and theorizing like the Areopagus, he has given us proof with Jesus who was raised from the dead. Last week we talked about apple orchards, huh? I think it applies today again. How apple orchards in our time kind of get, you know, all about a lot of different things like mazes and, and, and face painting and one-man bands. But if, if you strip it all away, really what should be at the heart of apple orchards? Apples, right? Yeah. And the same is true with our faith. When you strip away the buildings and you strip away the pastors and you strip away a location and when you strip away the music and you strip away the meetings and you just take all that away, at the very heart should be Jesus. And when our heart and focus is there, guess what happens? Doubt. Doubt. 
lessens and trust grows. You know why it is that we tell you the same message every single week? Every single week we tell you about Jesus. Now we tell you other applications, but we always get back to where I am right now, Jesus. Because it is at the heart of who we are as Christians. It's the heart of our faith. And the cool thing is, you can be the most confident people in the world that the faith the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart through a point of history that has been written about, you have no need for just-in-case gods. You have Jesus. Amen.